What an honor it is for me to introduce the brilliant and always prescient presence of Joyelle McSweeney, who at today's 11th hour will run through a few examples of experiments in Gothic forms and their grave contemporary consequences. Joyelle is here to disseminate the darkness, to discuss the economic, environmental, political, and physical anxieties a so-called Gothic narrative might aptly capture and to begin a discussion of this old-fashioned literary genre and how it might inspire haunted, creepy, bizarre, and hopefully even dangerous writing of our own. Joelle McSweeney is a poet, playwright, fiction writer, performer, and editress extraordinaire. Her most recent books include Salamandrine, Eight Gothics, published by Tarpaulin Sky, and Percussion Grenade, published by Fence. Joyelle is co-founder of the literary journal Action Yes, as well as Action Books, a press that publishes poetry and books in translation, and she currently teaches at the University of Notre Dame. So let's welcome her here today. Yeah, like this for you, maybe? Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you, wanna, you can put it in your pocket. I do want to walk. Can you hear me? Is this a thing? Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know that these brief sessions that you spend in Iowa City are very intense and packed with all kinds of voices and ideas, and I know that this is the next to last day, and there's sidewalk shopping going on, so for you to make room in your day and in your week for me is a great gift to me, and I really appreciate that. I also want to say before I begin that I'm putting um, a pretty... I set, I sent that description to Carol, and I made it really broad, because I wasn't sure what my tactic would be yet, um, and I'd be happy to touch on some of the things that came up in her introduction. And I, to make this something that was useful for all of us in a short period, I kind of narrowed my tact. But I in no way mean this to be the only take on a contemporary Gothic or the only set of examples or anything. I just wanted to sort of demonstrate a way of reading and a certain set of things that I respond to um, that make me feel like I'm in the presence of the contemporary Gothic. But what I think could be exciting is if there's time at the end or amongst yourself afterwards, obviously changing this model, adjusting it to what makes sense for you, and adding the examples that are exciting to you. So I really don't mean this to be in any way like a, a last word, but really just the beginning of some thinking about what the contemporary Gothic could mean in different genres and contexts, different places around the world. Okay, so just to keep this legit, we must start with our Emily Dickinson epigraph. <laughs> Nature is a haunted house, but art a house that tries to be hunted. And I'll be discussing that as we go along. But since we're goths today, I felt we could start with kind of an occult invocation um, so that this whole, this whole uh, speech maybe is happening inside Emily Dickinson's head. Um, what a vain thing to say. All right, so let us, let us begin. Um, my advanced description for this lecture proposed a very contentious dichotomy. I said, in the age of e-books and e-readers, MOOCs and digital publishing, in an age of the total colonization of the writing, publishing, distribution, reading, discussion, and teaching of literature by technology, um, what use and relevance can the Gothic have? This is a question, right? And I am not a technophobe, as you can see. I am going to show you some clips and some websites. And um, my whole 
the whole way I think about literature probably wouldn't even be possible without the internet giving me access to a, like international writers and translators in real time, so I am not a technophobe. But we must admit that the Gothic form is not a forward-looking form, right? It's, it's antiquated by definition, and that creates a really interesting paradox that I want to begin with today. So what I say is, what I have to say is this. The Gothic, the Gothic is, of course, outmoded by definition, passionately and fraudulently antique. Its inception as a British mode, usually indexing a fake Catholic or medieval prehistory, and its existence in a Latin American aesthetic is often based on a bombastic repetition of Spanish or European models, which themselves are often based on kind of a bombastic or false idea of Roman ruins or you know something built upon a ruin. So when we're talking about the Gothic you know, in its like classic form, we're already talking about something that has its own theory of the past and is constantly attending to that kind of fake and made-up past. It's not something that we associate with like TED Talks or nextness at all. Um, the Gothic house, for example, which is something I'm going to talk about a lot today, it stands outside of rational time. It seems to stutter between its future and its past. And in this ambiguous state, it generates an uncanny energy field, releasing a cascade of spectacular events, reanimations, bloodbaths, and hauntings. In this sense, Gothic anachronism is a political force because it issues great lashings of temporality beyond the boundaries of what paternalistic plots of bloodline and property were designed to predict and thereby protect. Moreover, the Gothic takes the family dynasty, punned with and iconized by the house, so like the fall of the House of Usher, obviously, and shows it not to be a janitor or a guarantor of a future, but the stalking place of ghosts. And this is the exact opposite, I would argue, of the technophilic progress of the age we are, of our contemporary faith, that we think that, you know, technology solves problems, and people, CEOs who bring technology into the world have information about the future that we need to make our lives better. So we live in a state of um, technophilia, I would say. And our contemporary moment holds technophilia as a total article of religious, political, and economic faith. But the Gothic has its own thing going on. So that the Gothic can perform such a radical and denaturalizing effect um, that is, to stop time and make it run backwards instead of having time move forwards and to sort of change the order so that it's not as if um, primogeniture can control what property does, but it kind of goes backwards and breaks the house apart and sends the dead girl flying out to have one more shot at ruining everyone's life. Um, <laughs> so that the Gothic can perform such radical and denaturalizing effects is evident in Dickinson's perfect one-line letter, which I quoted for you for our epigram and epigraph. Um, and which she wrote to Thomas Higginson in 1876. This is just a one-line letter, and it looks pretty much like... I, I haven't been able to find a holograph, so if anyone's seen the holograph of this, please let me know. I don't know exactly how the dashes look, but there are dashes there where I put them. Um, on first reading, Emily Dickinson's famous uh, one-liner appears to assert a familiar binary, privileging nature over art. Nature is tautologically natural. It even is naturally haunted. While art is a realm of triving, contrivance, and maybe trickery, nature is while art tries. Yet, after multiple readings, the figure begins to shift here. After all, do we normally think of nature as being a house, which is a man-made structure? Doesn't this denaturalize the conventionally naturalized term nature to compare it to a house? Or just say it is a house, not just to compare it to a house. Just as Chekhov noted that if one has a gun on the stage, it must go off, so in the Gothic, if one has or is a house, the house must come down, releasing a cascade of spectacular effects. 
In Dickinson's quote, the house is an infernal double, making art and nature into twins which do not properly reflect each other, which is a trope you see a lot in Gothic, like two uncanny resemblances among cousins or between a painting and a girl, this type of thing. Like the, the double that is not a complete double, that kind of tremor in the world is where a Gothic event can happen. And I'm arguing that just the way this aperture is kind of lined up with the two houses um, with the missing is in the second half of the parallelism is one of these kind of tremoring doubles ready for a gothic effect. Um, so in Dickinson quote, the house is an infernal double making art and nature into twins which do not properly reflect each other. So both become haunted in irrational domains and the dashes themselves introduce instability by sort of swallowing up the second is in the parallelism. So it's nature is a haunted house but art a house that tries to be hunted. The image of the house literally denatures nature, and by making nature's art, by making nature into art's twin-like cousin and yanking her into the haunted house of the Gothic, um, she, n- nature becomes like an uncanny damsel in a novel, like something by Sheridan Le Fanu. Um, Dickinson, in, in short, in her characteristically brave manner, uh, subjects this most sovereign of entities, nature, to the Gothic's bizarre and dismantling force by making it a house, a man-made thing changing its scale. But to return to the contemporary, the great contemporary Argentinian poet and literary critic Maria Negroni uh, has written a c- several, but one critical work on the Gothic I'd like to discuss. And I call it on the handout the Dark Museum, but I think it's actually Black Museum, like Museo Negro. And it treats on a variety of literary works and films. And I thought, rather than summarizing this, I would show you the Google Word Cloud. <laughs> what is in this book? So this is Google Books, um, Museo Negro. And by Maria Negroni, who is an Argentinian, um, this was published in 1999, she's an Argentinian literary critic. And here is the word cloud, if you can make it up. So, acaso, agua, alquimica, amalia, almost amor, and Radcliffe, etc. So it's got Anne Radcliffe, French Broker, Dracula, Carmilla, and then Joseph Cornell, which is interesting, um, Nosferatu, Lord Byron, Sharon Lafanu, Vampiro, etc. So it's got all those. Where did they go? It's got all of our favorite spectral disappearances. Um, all of our favorite guys in the novelas goticas in this, in this book. Um, this incisive work, which is beginning to be translated by the American poet and translator Michel Gilles Montero, and I've put a couple excerpts on your handout, accords with my argument because it links the irrationalism and anachronism of the Gothic to its political potential. So some would say, oh, the Gothic is so fantastic, therefore it disavows politics and has no politics. But I would argue, and it turns out Maria Negroni also argues, and she is the uh, expert, so let's go with her, that uh, the irrationalism and anachronism of the Gothic is its political force. And here's what she has to say about that. True, this is the first quote, true, Gothic castles are by definition outmoded places. But at the same time, and no no doubt for that very reason, their architecture of excess shelters the sutured dreams, the shadowy ossuaries that reveal the deafest zones of human experience, granting access to hallucinatory knowledge. A new gaze derives from these things. Okay, so from all the backward-looking anachronism of the Gothic, a new gaze derives. A new gaze derives from these things. A new pathos that flies the inactual like a flag and makes the errant imagination a bulwark against the illuminated scene of history. Between ideology and crime, the Gothic prefers an epic of intensity, insofar as it it rehabilitates madness as a via negativa while postulating the improbable as an antidote to all transcendence. And here's the most acute part, I think, of this quote. Faced with a categorical domain, 
which always precedes the police state, it proposes a lyric solution. Don't decide, but stoke the tensions. Don't obstruct madness, but make way for its phantasmal form, morphing it into metaphysical space. And she further argues, um, to what is noble or exemplar in the human being, poetry, just like the Gothic castle, brings something into opposition, the violence of a movement that time and again holds true to its sorrows. Beyond the Gothic palisade, in short, there are more than dens, terrible solitudes, and young innocent maidens lost among the harbingers of evil. There is also, above all, a centrifugal force, a fragile and contradictory mobile space that straddles the void and sets up a ghostly beginning. So again, we hear newness, beginning, tracing through this, a ghostly beginning that, in reaffirming its essential state of incompletion, another magic word, wards off the petrified and petrifying fullness of all realist and totalitarian discourse. So what Negroni does that's really exciting, in addition to constructing what you can see as a really international edifice for the Gothic that actually talks about movies, including Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, in, among the Gothic works she discusses. She also makes a real political claim for the Gothic by taking the things that are usually held against the Gothic and saying, this is where the Gothic makes its palisade. It, it opens up incomplete space. It won't be demarked in... Um, the kind of rationalism or categorical domains of politics or ideology, but it sort of makes a something new that has not yet quite come into being. And if you've read many Gothic tales, you know that they often end very abruptly. Um, if you can remember the end of the fall of the ass of Usher, the narrator charges out of the house, and then the house of Usher has an amazing spectacle, and then suddenly it's swallowed by the tarn. And I would argue that the sort of um, quick finish of, of these gothic tales uh, helps to maintain this potential energy in a, in a weird way because it doesn't use it all up in diminuendo. It just kind of booms and then we have this strange vacuum or void that we as the reader feel something rushing across to us. But that's just me and the gothic. Moving on. So in this pair of excerpts that I walked you through from Negroni, she construes the political force of the Gothic within the contemporary. The Gothic has a force on the contemporary because it is not typical of the contemporary. It does not participate in the imperatives of ideology, the categorical domain of the police state. And I would add, me not Negroni, that it does not participate in consumer imperatives, um, the selection of products, or the loyalty to brands or clans, for that matter. It brings violence and sorrow, which are, which are often obscured by progressivist mantras, into view. Etymologically, the obscene, this is my own point, not Negroni's. Etymologically, the term obscene refers to that which should be hidden from view and is not. That's like literally what the Latin means, obscene. It comes into the scene. But the Gothic, with its emphasis on collapse, violence, sorrow, and blood, brings the unsurvivability of the present moment and the inviability of the future on this planet into obscene view. And this is what I refer to that Carol is referring to, like an environmentalist Gothic, um, a Gothic nature. Um, one that takes the species extinction of our moments and the uh, carcinogenic nature of our planet at, at its current form and brings that into view as opposed to sort of hiding it the way for years it has been hided. I think the, Goth the Gothic has a potential as an environmentalist form too, and that's something I've written about in my own work. Uh, I make up this term for it called the necropastoral, um, a pastoral that attends to the dismantled and mutant nature that the Anthropocene arrives at. But I'm not really going to go here in this talk, because this talk's mostly about Gothic houses. All right, so moving on. Um, so now I'm, I'm making an oration. This is me, not Negroni. We live in an age of terror, and that this should be a cliche is frightening. Like, that that can be a cliche, like something that you can just say, or a newscaster might just say, we live in an age of terror. But it's true. But the Gothic admits that terror. 
and makes it really frightening rather than a political cliche. It gives us a way out of the rigidity of political thought that propagates terror in the first place. But it is a contradict the Gothic is a contradictory, fragile space, an unmade space, a space that's morphing, irrational, a non-binary space. Um, as Negroni says, reaffirming its essential state of incompletion. It's something propulsive and potential, but not yet yoked to utilitarian logic, and we don't yet know what it's good for. So that's the first part of my talk, um, setting up the idea framework here. And I guess what I hope that I've linked so far for you is this idea of space and force. Gothic has its own physics, let's say. Um, it's a way that Gothic forcefulness creates an, a non-Cartesian um, space that's full of potential energy. And if you think of the Gothic that you know, just like the standard canonical Gothics, they're full of weather and weathering and gusting and blowing and houses that fall down. And I, I would argue that these things are linked, that this is the force of the Gothic, that it contains gusts and it blows the house down. And when that house is blown down, a spectacular event momentarily arises. And it's the unknowingness of that event that is the p potential for Gothic. I'll give you some examples of what I mean. Moving forward, part two, some contemporary Gothic. So before I get to the contemporary examples, I'm going to be Gothic and perform another anachronism and look backwards to one more example. And this time, it's an example I'm sure is probably familiar to everybody here, which is Poe's Fall of the House of Usher. I'll return to this text because it not only pulls together the characteristics of the Gothic, but it also emblematizes the propulsive irrational, what Negroni might call the centrifugal force of the Gothic, to split the house apart, jump, flee the center, um, blow apart everything in its way. Um, a force that leaps the boundary between text and event and multiplies and amplifies effects and turns art into life, reanimates the dead, extinguishes the living, splits the house apart so as to more artfully frame the spectacle of a bloody moon, and finally splashes the house apart and rips it back or then rips it up into page-like fragments and whisks these off the scene. So what I've given you in the handout is just the last two paragraphs of the fall of the House of Usher, which if you've read it, it's pretty unforgettable, right? So first Roderick says, Madman, I tell you, she stands without the door, um, literally outside the door. And what's been going on, if you don't remember, is they've been keeping themselves awake slash calm by reading literature and the speaker has been reading to Roderick um, the tale of Lancelot and when the armor crashes to the ground within the story they hear that crash outside the story and they slowly realize that it's Madeline who has clawed her way out of the grave but the first thing that happens is that they're reading and that the sound effect uncannily moves outside of the text they're reading and is in real space and then that seems to produce the image of Madeline um, so to continue, so Roderick says, Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door, as if in the superhuman energy of his utterance there had been found the potency of a spell. And that's the urgency, the potency that I've been trying to get at Gothic Forest. Um, he says this words, it works like a spell. And then the huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed through slowly, through seems wrong. That looks like a typo by me. But okay, through slowly back upon the instant. Oh no, they're ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust. So here in this most iconic of American Gothic tales, Fall of the House of Usher, we see this gust, this sound. It travels out of the story into the room. It through his mouth and blows open the doors, and there she is, right? So we can kind of trace this weather system, Gothic weather system in the stories, right? 
But without, but then without the, I just wanted to read this. But then without those doors, there did stand the lofty and shrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. Even the sound, Usher, you can hear the kind of gust moving sonically. There was blood upon her white robes and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother and in her violent now final death agonies bore him to the floor of course and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated so what I want to trace here is not cause and events as we understand it in conventional plot or even rational decision making but rather a, a sound a gust an energy a sonic energy that travels out of the story into the building blows up in the, through his mouth blows up in the gates pushes her forward she falls down pushes the life out of him right but that is not all as the cat in the hat says because then <laughs> It blows the narrator and hence the narration forward and out of the house too. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm is still abroad and all its wrath. It even is whipping up the outside too, right? And I found myself crossing the old causeway. And this is so beautiful. I just think we should read it again. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting and blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure of which I have before spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. So the house splits and the splits and splits, and there's the blood-red moon behind it, um, which is such a gorgeous spectacle or performance. And this is the moment of the Gothic and its potential for me. When I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind, so that gust is still moving in and out of human mouths into the landscape back, into the, you know, this gust that moves sonically. Um, so there came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. The brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder, and there was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters. And the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed suddenly and silently over the fragments of the house of Usher. And when that house of Usher comes in, it's in italics with quotes. Like, like it's as if we've gone through this incredible spectacle. The house splits apart, so this incredible thing can be seen. The big glowing moon. There's all this vertigo, like human voices and the water and the house rushing. And all that happens. And then suddenly in the last clause, we kind of rip that up. And the very last thing seems to be the title of the story, as if the book has just closed. Like, done. And the narration cannot continue anymore. So that's pretty exciting, I think. And that, for me, is paradigmatic of Gothic force. Um, and as a political force that can travel outside of the book, too. In this one, it closes, and so it remains kind of potential. Um, when the tarn closes, the narrative closes, and the silence extinguishes the mobile centrifugal gust, which robs the narrator of his narrating breath. So now on to the contemporaries. So you can see how some writers actually have used this um, in political contexts. The first person I want to talk about is Morosa um, de Giorgio. She's an Uruguayan poet, and she died not too long ago. She presents an excellent model of the centrifugal force, and centrifugal is a word I'm taking from Negroni, and I'm keeping some motif today, and the spatial paradox of the Gothic, um, what Negroni has called the contradictory mobile space that straddles the void and sets up a ghostly beginning, that reaffirming its essential state um, of incompletion. Da, da, da. So de Giorgio, um, Marissa de Giorgio is mostly a prose poet. Her body of work is made up of ultra-compressed prose poems, and it's, they're set in a state of apparent seclusion and withdrawal, um, to which the violence of experience continually arrives. They often have a child speaker, a girl speaker, and they're set like in a family country house, and then um, in this really compressed prose poem form, uh, 
spectacular events continually happen, um, sort of like you feel like Dickinson experienced day-to-day life, um, but in 20th century Uruguay under the military junta and in a context of revolutionary cadres and military juntas kind of duking it up. So here we have uh, Marosa. This is from her 1965 series, The History of Violets, which is the only complete series of her that's been translated, like the whole series, and I really suggest you seek it out. You can find it on the internet. Order yourself a beautiful copy. It's a beautiful little book. History of Violets sounds innocuous enough, just like Dickinson's Herbarium might seem like an innocuous collection. It does not. And here is uh, DiGiorgio's poem translated by Janine Marie Pitas. The gladiolus is a spear, its edge loaded with carnations, a knife of carnations. It jumps through the window, kneels on the table. It's a vagrant flame burning up our papers, our dresses. Mother swears that the dead man has risen. She mentions her father and her mother and starts to cry. The the pink gladiolus opened up in our house, but scare it, tell it to go. That crazy lily is going to kill us. Um, So here we see the same irrational relay of energy that sets the House of Usher crashing to the ground. The gladiolus is a gaudy, many-blossomed stalk of flowers. It anachronistically remembers its etymology, that gladiolus means little sword. And armed with its etymology, it enters the house, bringing its inflamed contagion to our papers and our dresses. Um, That's the first stanza. But then it also opens up an ambivalent unfinished intervals, because after the scene is set in that first prose stanza... There's this moment where the scene begins again, and she said, the speaker says, um, the pink gladiolus opened up in our house, and there's white space around it. It's almost as if the speaker is kind of restaging this interlude, this time without the fear, just restating that step and using, using now opened up kind of a female image, a female um, sexuality, uh, kind of hermaphroditic moment for the gladiolus, which a minute ago was a little spear, and is now opening. And then in this kind of contradictory interlude that our girl speaker, always susceptible and agothic, kind of just stops and looks at it, and the clock kind of stops for a minute, right? And then we get the final two lines, but scare it, tell it to go. The poem tries to kind of regain its dismissive, um, adult-like, maybe, perspective. Um, so, yes, in the end, the poem brushes off that kind of dilated moment where it starts again. It brushes off this moment of ambivalence, and in the final line, it secures the fatality of the, the lily's appearance. It is going to kill us, just as Madeline Usher is without the door and nature is a haunted house. It's like the Gothic is. This is happening, right? This is seems much fuller than a conventional English language use of the word is, which is something that we use to get quickly to the predicate. But here, this is seems full of a kind of presence. Every utterance in DiGiorgio has the potency of a spell. Indeed, the rest of her poem sequence, this is just in the early part of a poem sequence, and it's full of abductions, genocides, rapes taking place, but they take place on the smallest, most immediate of scales among mushrooms, angels, blossoms, and doves, in this case, gladiolus. Like, the whole political scene is, like, crushed down into this domestic space from a little girl's eye level. But, it, but nothing is left out. Everything can get in the room. Just as in a gothic tale, the vampire can always get in. You're never going to keep that vampire out. Um, crises are reputable, but they're never decisive. So every poem can have something spectacular happen, but it never quite finishes or runs out of that gothic energy, which makes the endings of DiGiorgio's poems always very fraught, just as this, that crazy lily is going to kill us. is very fraught. Another poem ends, uh, it's a poem about a wardrobe, describing you know the child in bed looking at a closet or a wardrobe, and it ends... But then everything burst into flames and disappeared. So God stows his things away safely. 
So <laughs> it's a very ambiguous ending. Does God stow them away by burning them like a sacrifice? Or does God let us burn while stowing his own things away in heaven? It's hard to say. But all of her poems are just as brief as the one I gave you. They're really compressed prose, and they have these dynamite, literal, almost literally dynamite ending that kind of, you know, kind of blow your... I just, like, I've been reading about a wardrobe. You know, what's going on? Um, in another description of a wardrobe, it ends, grapes were bursting out from everywhere. A big, rough, blue bunch even emerged from the wardrobe, ancient wood, and lasted forever like a poet. <laughs> right? This is like totally Emily Dickinson and Marosa were definitely like having a deep conversation. I'm sure Marosa shows you read Dickinson. But I love her sense of timing um, and the kind of sinister quality. Uh, if we look for the gothic strain in the writing of contemporary Korean poet Kim Hee-soon, which I've given you the full excerpt there, we won't go through the whole thing for time reasons, uh, we can see domestic space wrought and distorted by images of cuteness, which is another way I could have discussed this. I've been talking about the house's icon, but of course domesticity is part of houses. Uh, it's another way to discuss this. So the, in, in Kim Hee-soon, we also begin to see the something that I think is a contemporary strategy for the gothic, which is like what counts as the house. So in the case of Kimmy Soon's poem that I gave you here, it's called Soul's Dinner. And so it's almost as if instead of just one house that a traditional Gothic novel might address or the fall of the House of Usher, Seoul itself is the house, the city of Seoul in Korea, the metropolis of Seoul. And it becomes the space to which everything comes and the space where everything could collapse, right? So um, to just read a tiny bit about this house, flowers enter, the flowers with puckered lips, the flowers that fill the back of a truck and stick on the wall of the tunnel. The tunnel reddens momentarily. She picks off the new leaves and shoves them into her mouth. Angelica shoots drop from Angelica trees and fall into the dish of seasoned soy sauce. A truckload of Angelica enters. Angelica shoots turn the mouth of soul green. Flatfish enter. A thousand flatfish packed in ice water swooning. A truckload of the East Sea enters. Pigs enter. The pigs oink and suck on soul's lips. She dips the meat from the pig's neck in pickled shrimp and eats. Her scurving throat is omnivorous. Mudfish pour like in a muddy stream. The Tabak range is shredded and enter squirming. So I'll stop reading there because I think you get a sense of how in the contiguousness of these senses, I mean, in, in some ways, the, so this is a prose poem as well, um, but the poems are so contiguous that they create an elasticized kind of Escher-like, inside-out, irrational, almost intestinal force to this poem. To enter the poem is to be converted into whatever comes next. So it's hard when you read this, like, what is going on? I'm reading about a flower, but it has lips. Now I'm reading about a fish, but now I'm reading about the whole sea. It's like things tug other things along with it. You can't draw a boundary and stop things from morphing in this space. Um, for me, that makes the moments when human pronouns arise very frightening, because I don't know what noun to put them on, and I don't know whether this is soul who has these pronouns, or whether this is a human figure within or without the body of soul. Um, and not knowing, not knowing how to spatially arrange that scale creates the kind of vertigo and the feeling of risk here that feels gothic to me um, within the house of soul. So I say by the third of the way through the poem, we're tempted to re-rationalize the poem by saying, well, every time it says she, it must be soul, because we know this is soul's dinner and she has lips, so that's fine. But I'm not sure that's actually true. I think that's kind of a coping strategy for this poem. Um, because you know, we could make up a one reading like, here's all the things hyper-consumerist soul consumes in an evening. Like, here's everything it takes to feed this particular city. But I don't think that really explains how it can consume its own mountain range, for example, or its own sea. It doesn't really account for the poem's omni-violence, the way everything is being, like, consumed. 
And finally, the appearance of the eye in the poems of the third. I didn't read this part, but if you just skim down, you can see the eye eventually comes in. And, and to me, that pierces the regime by introducing yet another potential space or house, a somehow tiny feeling outside. Um, I cannot be properly digested by soul. If you look, if you just skim your line, eyes down, you'll see I speaks in the very last sentence, um, which makes the eye seem somewhat demonic, like what could survive this house slash belly slash body slash soul. But I is more ferocious and virulent than soul itself. By the end, the preposterous eye shoves her mouth white with snow, with aftermath, with the white space that ends the poem. The mouth of the poem is finally stuffed, but it's stuffed with a profoundly empty, with the void, and it cuts off breath, and it cuts the poem off. Um, I think probably some discussion could be made about how that ending is or is not like the ending of the House of Usher poem. So, contemporary Gothic makes good on the centrifugal potential Negroni isolates in her study. To return again to her quote, faced with the categorical domain, what always precedes the police state, it proposes a lyric solution. Don't decide, but stoke the tensions. Don't obstruct madness, but make way for its phantasmal form, morphing it into metaphysical space. To me, this quote seems especially to describe Kimi Soon's crazy poem, and I say crazy as a honorific. I love it. I'm a publisher of Kimi Soon's work in English, so... I think this is great, important work, and she's a very famous poet, like the foremost woman contemporary poet in Korea. Um, so Negroni's quote seems to me to describe the febrile, morphing, profound spatiality of Kim Hae-soon, whose feminist work, both as a poet and a critic, has set itself against and militarized masculinist, paternalistic strictures of traditional Korean culture. Like, she is part of a literary group called Another Culture that tries to make space for feminism within, within Korean culture, and she's confected, basically, a new Korean literature around these principles, um, going up against the militarism of the 20th century and the corporatism of 21st century Korea, and the way it served us with a military and a corporate neo-colony for the West. It's not hard to see from the sample I've shown you how the irrational house of Kim's poetry confects a spasming counter-material against Cartesian militarist and rationalist regimes. And I haven't mentioned her name, but the, all this translation work is done by Don Miche, who is an award-winning um, multimedia artist, poet, and instructor of poetry. And you should also look up her. Your name's on the handout, Don Miche. I'd like to conclude my presentation with a return to prose, with one more example. Like Kimi Soon, the Argentinian writer Cesar Ira, who um, is there too, he remakes the Gothic house again with contemporary sightlines. And I think this is maybe something we could talk about if there's time afterwards, is like how contemporary poets do have to readdress, like, or contemporary goth, goth writers have to think about what the house is. And I think it's in with that with that variation of what the house is within their gothic model that makes the works exciting. So if Kimi Soon makes Soul the house, um, Cesar Ira does something really interesting in his short novel Ghosts. In fact, he writes very short novels, very short novels, like 90-page novels, and maybe that has something to do with remaking the house of the novel. Um, so Ghosts was first, so Cesar Ira is Argentinian, and Ghosts was first published in 1990 as uh, Las Fantasmas, and it's translated by Chris Andrews, who also translates all, almost all of Bolaño's short novels, and Bolaño is a big fan of Ira, and they pull Bolaño quotes to endorse as blurbs for Ira's book. So Ira is a major writer. Um, okay, so, so ghosts. For the Gothic habitation in ghosts, Ira erects a house that isn't there. More specifically, the house of this book, literally, it's about a luxury condominium being built by migrant workers, but it's an unfinished building in the book Ghosts. And the migrant workers squat on the different floors as they attempt to finish the condo 
that they're building and the luxury, the owners come and like walk through and walk out again, like to see how the building is going. And that's the setting for the book ghosts. Um, so the migrant worker squat on the various floors. The tone of Ira's book isn't gothy at all. It's actually fable-like and even cartoonish. As the workers and their children scramble around the wallless floors, they sleep and eat on the roof. They look straight out at the city around them, from which they are also isolated. And they are watched by a cartoonish troop of ghosts. And these ghosts have long noses, exposed, hilarious penises, and so forth. And there's sort of like slapstick interactions with these ghosts. So it doesn't have a gothic tone like we think. Like it's not a sinister tone. It's just incredibly strange and kind of hilarious. Um, only the workers, not the rich folks, can see these ghosts. And especially uh, the adolescent girl, Patri, can see the ghosts. And her fate as the inmate of a gothic novel should tell you that the adolescent girl is going to be particularly vulnerable to the ghosts, and she will indeed cross a fatal boundary and step away from a family meal in the last few pages to commune with the ghosts. And to find out exactly how, I really suggest you read this book because it is a perfect novel. It's, it's a perfect, beautiful book. It's from New Directions and a very beautiful edition. And of course, if you read Spanish, you can read it in the original. The airiness of Ira's novel, like it literally has no walls, it's very airy and reads really quickly and it's not dark at all in its tone. And the airiness of the novel provides a breathtaking plummet in its final lines. Ira's work is phenomenal, lightning quick read, somehow both breezy and devastating and I advise everyone to read it immediately. Um, in verticalizing the Gothic and erecting a half-built luxury high-rise, which is a ruin in advance, in a way, it looks like a ruined building because it's not completed yet, Ira is able to instantize the precarity of late 20th century political and financial regimes. Um, the building is precarious, the migrant squatter laborers are isolated and vulnerable, and most importantly, the wallless structure cannot wall out the ghosts of the past, right? So in the Argentinian context, this could refer to a whole century of coups, murders, and dictatorships, but immediately in 1990, it's the immediate aftermath of the dirty war with its tortured and erased uh, disappeared, who are, are taken by most readers to be embodied in these male, body, attractive, frank, youthful ghosts with which the migrant laborers basically party in this book. Indeed, three years after the book was written, and here I'm referring to an article by Marcelo Valdez in The Nation. You can Google that. Uh, three years after the book was written, a general amnesty was announced for perpetrators of the dirty war, and 50,000 Argentinians took to the street in protest. So it's Valdez's thesis, which seems right, is, um, you know, we need to see these ghosts. We can't let prosperity and our luxury condominium wall out the ghosts, and we refuse to stop looking at the ghosts. And this is a great example of the role that Gothic can play in disrupting the amnesia that is the regime of progress. Um, so Gothic's allegorical burden intensifies rather, but does not weigh down the work, Ira's work. It's not weighty read, it's not a dark read. It's just a strangely intense and fluttery, almost febrile read. It's over before you know it, and I guarantee it will knock you out. It's full of nimble and ardent digressions. And one takes place while teenage Patri is sleeping on the in the heat of the day. This migrant worker, 15-year-old, is sleeping on the top of the structure. And Ira takes this moment where his, his uh, protagonist is sleeping to sort of go on an essayistic digression about architecture. And he talks a lot about the unbuilt as a, in a way which chimes for me with Negroni's discussion of Gothic incompleteness. Um, Ira says, the architectural key to the built unpilt opposition, which analogies fail to capture, is the flight of time towards space. And dreaming is that flight. Dreams are pure space, the species arrayed in eternity. 
So Patri's crystalline, no, end quote. So, so for me, he's making a, he uses the term unbuilt a lot of times and talks about how space, that's, that's when time and space are kind of diving forward together in the space of the unbuilt. And to me, that is another way of voicing the political force of the Gothic. Um, and close quote, now just me. Patri's crystalline dream builds out an impossible absolute architecture, a dream architecture, which disintegrates and remakes the luxury structure its yuppie owners are just waiting to possess. And there's a lot of that language in the book. It's like they're waiting to possess it, um, but they do not possess it yet. And while they don't possess it, these other people squat there and dream there. And here's a beautiful quote from the book. Um, it's on your handout. In Patri's dream, the building on the Calle Jose Bonifacio was under construction. Standing still, yet seized by an interior interstitial movement. Suddenly a wind, a typical dream wind, so typical that dreams might be said to consist of it, arose and blew the building apart, reducing it to little cubes the size of dice. So you can see the Usher motif here again, right? This was the transition to the word of cartoons. The building was reconstructed somewhere else, in another form, its atoms recombined, then it disintegrated again, the wind scattering its particles, one of which came to rest on Patri's open eye, and in its microscopic interior, an entire house was visible, with all its rooms and furniture, its candelabras, carpets, glass, I should say glassware, and the little golden mill that spins in the wind from the stars." For me, that last phrase is like an incredibly moving arrival because up to then, you're kind of following this Voorheesian argument and the stuff in the little apartment is just stuff in an apartment. It's candelabras, tablecloths. And then there's this impossible object. You almost have to read it a couple times. Like, did I just read that line? The, <laughs> what is that little golden mill that spins in the wind from the stars? It's almost as if we're supposed to know what that is, that, that dream object that may be found. Only when the luxury condo is blown apart by dream potential can we discover this impossible engine of something else, right? So as this is my concluding paragraph, good news for you. Here, here we are buffeted along by the gust from the House of Usher, along a scale constantly exploding and imploding on itself, as in the guts of Kimisun's syntax, into a profound yet profoundly domestic space entirely authored by a dream, a species arrayed in eternity, a domestic infinity, which will remind us of Emily Dickinson's domain. We discover an impossible object here, and I cannot tell you how moved I am by the final image in this paragraph, this small impossible engine, a tiny momentum, that is located in the middle of such building and dispersal and so much grief. It is over in an instant. Patri's mother arrives in the next paragraph from her shopping and wakes her up. And the story flies on towards its fatal conclusion. But in the figure of Patri's dream, we see the power of the unbuilt, its absolutes, what the Gothic can uncover and possibly discover amid the platitudes and truisms of contemporary regimes of capitalism, rationalism, and the would-be security of the future. To make the clocks run backwards, to force Cartesian space to bend, double, and be non-identical to itself, to break the laws of physics by confecting an impossible object for the world, to run impossible engines, to wave the flag of the inactual, to open up impossible intervals and apertures, to see ghosts, to prefer ghosts, to pierce rationalist space with an utterance of syllables which have the force of a spell, to bring down the house of capital and patriarchy. This is the potential force of the Gothic on the contemporary, and this is its undead vitality. That's my talk. So for the very last moment, though, I'm going to give the floor to another young poet. This is a poet called Rinaldo Wilson. And I mentioned that, to me, one of the things that we can track as we talk about contemporary gothics is to see what can happen to the house and how the house is rendered. So we have literal houses. We have the house of soul. We have the house of a building site. And here, um, this is my town, South Bend, Indiana, as we were attempting to recover from the polar vortex, which is that 
that white stuff which is not to be named, <laughs> turning gray in the parking lot of a liquor store. And in the back, you can see Fair Notre Dame. Um, it's softball stadium or something. But in the foreground, you can see uh, Ronaldo Wilson, the poet. And he is dressed um, in a character called Tear, like T-E-A-R hyphen E avatar. So he's dressed sort of as his own avatar, a figure that is kind of part shaman and part Serena Williams. And uh, <laughs> he performs this poem. And you please Google Ronaldo Wilson and learn all about him. But you can, he performs this poem in the parking lot of his liquor store in South Bend. It's a site-specific video poem. So I just play a little bit of it for you. Uh, just a few minutes. It's seven minutes long. It's called Gray. You can Google it. It's online. Uh, but here, see if I can make this work. You were the way I was the one. You were the one. And to me, the house is the rust belt itself, which is blown apart by the spectral winter, and this performance starts to Back. These are the notes that you hold back. These are the notes that you give. 
nouveau reach, the nouveau smell, the nouveau perspective. There are ways around this. There are ways What is bounded by desire? There are ways. There are ways. There are all around that clarity. Why student the other day? Just so I leave you to watch the rest of that on your time. But I think I think this is a really brilliant work. And one of the things ways it works on me is to make me really long for the reappearance of Tyria Avatar. I want to see her. Like I want. I love his poetry. His dancing body is gorgeous. His artwork is intense. But I want that figure to arise from the ruins of South Bend because I know she's bringing for me something I need. And I know she's blown on that gust from the House of Usher that's going to arrive and stop the clocks. So that's my talk today. And I hope there are some interesting things with you. Thank you.